If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John chapter 10, just a reminder that there are Bibles uh, available on the back table for you. If uh, you didn't bring your copy of God's Word, you can follow along with the screen, of course. We've been studying this Gospel account written by the Apostle John, and Jesus at this point in his life is nearing the end of his public ministry. We're only halfway through the Gospel, but we're nearing the end of his public ministry There's still a lot to come still in the life of Jesus. But for the last three years, Jesus has been traveling throughout Judea and Galilee, performing wonders that only God can do, and speaking with authority words that only God can say. There were, of course, his signs. We've looked at some of them already. Water to wine, the feeding of the 5,000 out of virtually nothing, the blind man from birth being given his sight. And then there were the statements, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And because of all these things that Jesus has done and that Jesus has said, there is a clarity to who he is and what he is about. And yet, according to John's account, Jesus has never publicly, explicitly declared to the masses that he is the Messiah. He's only done that in private. Perhaps he knows that such bold speak in a public forum would set in motion a series of events that he's not quite ready for. Because his time has not yet come. Well, it's this tension between what he has clearly showed himself to be about and yet what he has not said that comes to a head in our text today. We pick up where we left off last week. Last week we explored the powerful analogy and image of Jesus as our true shepherd. The one who knows us. The one who leads us. The one who lays down his life for us. Well here as we pick up where we left off in verse 22, Jesus picks up that same image though two months have passed between verse 21 and verse 22 where we are today. Two months have passed. But he picks up this imagery again, and as he does so, what Jesus does this morning is he lifts up the curtain of salvation, giving us just a glimpse, just a peek of what's really going on. And I hinted at it last week that we were headed in this direction, the supremacy of God in all things, specifically in our salvation. That's where we're headed This morning, deep waters for us. So listen as I read. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able, stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, through verse 42. Listen as I read. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us 
in suspense. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. A lot of ground to cover this morning as we continue our march through this gospel account. But before we jump into the teaching of this text this morning, I want to address just the details that John gives us right out of the gate in the first two verses that I just read to you. That kind of detail is not necessarily foreign to the Gospel of John. He's done this kind of thing before where he's talked about details that are happening. And it's a reminder, I think, a helpful reminder that these things are real, that these things happened in time and in place. And that seems to be the case as John mentions that it is winter And the fact that Jesus was in the colonnade of Solomon. You see, this was a particular part of the temple complex, the colonnade of Solomon, that wasn't completely out in the open. It was somewhat guarded from the elements, from the wind, and therefore provided some relief for Jesus as he spoke these words in a cold context from the winter winds and chill. But it's his use of this other detail in these opening verses that sets up, I think, for us an important and a unique irony in the passage. It was the time, John says, of the Feast of Dedication. This was a celebration also called the Festival of Light. We know it by its Hebrew name, Hanukkah. This was a religious and a political celebration of the Jewish people that wasn't prescribed by God in the Scripture, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, 
but it was one that had been created and born out of their experience as God's people, out of the history that they have endured. Let me explain some of that history to you. In 175 BC, the Syrian leader Antichius epiphany to power. And he had extended his rule and his authority and his reach into the nation of Israel. This man was a pagan ruler who sought to unify all of his kingdom under Greek customs. Which meant that the Jews and their religion had to go. So we're talking about some 200 years more or less before Jesus is on the scene. And Antiochus brutalized the Jews. He killed thousands of them. He made thousands more slaves. He outlawed the Torah. He banned the practice of circumcision. And he crucified women who defied him. He destroyed the temple of the Lord. And in its place, he built an altar to Zeus. And he offered swine there to spite the Jews. Well, as a result of this, a Jewish revolt under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus began and eventually successfully defeated the forces of their enemy. So in 165 BC, God's people rededicated the temple, hence the Feast of Dedication, restoring proper worship within its walls and giving thanks to the Lord who had given them success against their enemies. Well, this, you imagine, was a great moment in the life of God's people. This was cause for great celebration. National pride would have been at a high point. And the gratitude towards Yahweh and His blessing was there. But also, there was gratitude for Judas, Maccabeus, known as Judas the Hammer, because he had led them against their enemies. So that's the background of what's going on, the Feast of Dedication. And now, Jesus is here. Is Jesus here to finish the task? First we had Judas the Hammer, and now we have Jesus. Well, people wondered. People certainly hoped so. Because though things weren't as brutal as they were 200 years ago, the Jews were plenty tired of Roman rule. And the irony is that in Jesus, they do have their hero. A better hero than Judas the hammer. But not the kind of hero that they're expecting And so they don't see Him. They don't believe Him. You see, it's this that prompts the question of verse 24. They encircle Him and they say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I don't think this was like gentle curiosity. I think this is impatience. They're ready to roll. Move over, Judas the hammer. Jesus is here. Let's go. Let's get this revolution underway. 
If you're the Messiah, tell us. But they've got it all wrong. And that prompts Jesus to explain why. Why they don't believe. And the reality of those that do. And who He really is. And and in doing so in these verses, particularly in this first half of this passage that I just read, Jesus takes us in deep and difficult waters, exploring profound doctrine, and yet these are wonderful truths for our souls. And so three statements this morning for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. I'm going to spend most of our time on the first. And the first is this. God alone is the author of salvation. God alone is the author of salvation. Now, I'm quite certain that most Bible-believing Christians would say, yes, of course God is the author of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 seems pretty clear. Let me read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift. But I think sometimes that the way we think about God's gift of salvation to us is similar to how some of you spouses operate at Christmas time especially after you've been married for a lot of years. I know this from experience. You know how it works. The gift is addressed to you from your wife or from your husband, but there's really no surprise there. You know what's inside. You know because you picked it out. And you gave it to her, or you gave it to him, and then they wrapped it up and concealed it, and now they're giving it back to you. You see, that's not the kind of gift that Jesus seems to be talking about. A gift that you received, but you actually chose. No, he's talking about a gift that you didn't know that you needed. Or wanted. He's talking about a gift that you couldn't possibly buy for yourself. He's talking about a gift that you certainly don't deserve to receive. And I suspect that as we've read through this gospel, as we've heard about the things that Jesus did in the presence of all these people and asked the questions, uh, and, and we've asked the question that maybe they asked How could you all not believe after seeing all these things? I mean, if I had seen all this stuff that Jesus did, if I had heard all of this that Jesus said, I certainly would have believed that this guy was more than a mere man. But this guy could be who he says and implies he is. And in one sense, they they should have known. That's what Jesus tells them. I I made it plain to you, Jesus says. I've told you, verse 22. Five, through my deeds, it's been clear. I may not have said explicitly in public, but it's been clear. 
And so we ask the question then, they saw this thing, we ask the question, why are you not believing Jesus as they should have believed? So what is the issue? What's the issue? Well, notice that Jesus doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. That's not what he says. He says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. You see, Jesus proclaims here what the rest of Scripture teaches. God's sovereign determinism of who will be saved. He has his sheep. And they are chosen. They are set apart before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says. And not only that, but those, when, when those sheep hear his call, they come. They have to come. Ephesians 2.1 says they're dead. We were dead in our sin. Not just uninterested, but clueless and content to live without Him. But the voice of Jesus raises to life those whom the Father has given. God alone is the author of salvation. He alone is the one who receives all the glory. Deuteronomy 7, 6, when God and Yahweh chose and set apart his people Israel, he says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. All the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, Yahweh spoke these words to Israel declaring His sovereign pleasure in choosing this people and not this people. And now, here we are in the New Covenant, ushered in by Jesus, and we read in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And we don't have time to, to deep dive here. But this foreknowledge that Paul speaks about in Romans 8. It's not, a, it's not a foreseen. It's not a looking into the future to see what's going to happen. Now the word finds its roots in the Old Testament, in God's covenantal love, setting Israel apart and setting His prophets apart. For instance, when He knew Jeremiah in the womb and set him apart as a prophet before his birth. It's the same kind of foreknowledge. Deep waters. Now I recognize that for some of you, this is familiar territory. This is ground that you have covered long ago and that you are resolved to stand on. While for others who are hearing these words, it's maybe a bit of a mind job. It's a little struggle for you this morning. Because it seems to imply that what we do doesn't matter, right? Right? I assure you, Jesus is not 
reducing the responsibility of anyone to believe in Him. He's called them, all of them, to believe. The Scriptures call all to believe. That doesn't make any sense, Nate. How should we think about this? Well, J.I. Packer, a name some of you know, Anglican theologian who's now with the Lord in his helpful little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he brings up, I think, a helpful word for us to understand this teaching of Jesus. And the word is antinomy. Antinomy. Antinomy is an English word that means this. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, and yet both undeniable. You see, when we apply that word to something in Scripture, to God's self-revelation, to finite creatures such as us, we might say they give the appearance of a contradiction. And we would say God's sovereignty in salvation plus our responsibility to believe equals an antinomy. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. That God chooses us. Scripture teaches that we are responsible. We are accountable for the choices we make. We must choose Him. Both are true. Packer says this, I think expressing my heart and maybe your heart as well. He says, this is not easily done. For our minds dislike antinomies. We like to tie up everything into neat intellectual parcels with all appearance of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. For the sake of a tidier theology, the temptation is to undercut and maim one truth by the way in which we share the other. You see, brothers and sisters, we must hold both truths together. Despite the impossibility of fully getting our heads around it. It's no different for the Trinity. One plus one plus one equals one, not three. And frankly, brothers and sisters, these are not irrelevant theological musings. This is, this is comfort for the soul. How? Well, you have no one to thank for your salvation but God. He is the author. He has set His love upon you despite you. And you have no one to plead to for the salvation of others but God. There is no equation that you need to discover in order to convert your loved ones. There's no magical words that you need to find so that you can say that will help them change their minds and help them see. He must do it. He must open their eyes. And He will. God alone is the author of salvation. That's the first truth 
I think Jesus lays out for us this morning, but the wonder and the good news extends beyond the start of our salvation, and that's the second truth. God alone is the finisher of salvation. God alone is the finisher of salvation. Going back to the gift analogy, Jesus' gift is a gift that cannot be returned. The one who gave it and the way he gave it is too majestic. It's too powerful. It's too great. Therefore, in Jesus, the gift of salvation is secure forever. Verses 27 through 29 are some of the most profound, comforting verses from Jesus' lips, I think. He says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we ask, well, what kind of things, what kind of persons would be after our salvation? Who are the wolves, the thieves, the robbers that Jesus spoke of last week? Well, there's our flesh, (laughs) our tendency to wander as we confessed, to do what we don't want to do. There's the world with its constant allure and temptation, and then the devil as he capitalizes on these things, feeding us lie after lie after lie. The countless enemies of our souls would overwhelm us if it were up to us. But no enemy is strong enough, not even ourselves, not the world, not Satan. Colossians 3.3, for our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. And then back to Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news. We've been studying the Confession of faith and the officer training. We've talked about it a little bit in the new members, newcomers class as well. And I was reminded of chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, this beautiful exposition of the Bible's teaching in this lane. And I want to read just a portion of of it to you, two paragraphs. And I'm going to read it from a, a modernized version so you don't have to stumble over some of the archaic language. It says this, chapter 17, those whom God has accepted in His Son and has effectually called, my sheep hear my voice, and sanctified by His Spirit can never completely or finally fall out of their state of grace. Rather, they shall definitely continue in that state to the end and are eternally saved. This endurance of God's people does not depend on their own free will, but on God's unchangeable decree of election 
flowing from His voluntary, unchangeable love. It also depends on the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, on the indwelling spirit and indwelling seed of God and Christians, and on the nature of the covenant of grace. All these establish the certainty and the infallibility of their preservation. So the question arises, aren't we called to persevere though? Aren't we called to strive for faithfulness? Aren't we called to repent of our failings? Aren't we encouraged to endure to the end in the Bible? Absolutely. Matthew 24, 13. Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. But here's the thing, it doesn't depend upon you to hold on to Him because His love is a love that doesn't let go. He finishes what He started. He who began this good work will complete it, Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 1.6. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, these are hard teachings for us to hear, and we've just scratched the surface. Countless ink has been spilt exploring and explaining these things. And of course, these words that Jesus spoke in the first century, these were mind-jarring things for the Jews to hear as well, weren't they? So the cry to Jesus after He says all of these things was, on what basis can He say such things? This man whom some of them knew as a young boy growing up in the region of Nazareth suddenly expounding on the deep things of God. How does he even know these things? And that's where we end because it's where Jesus ends with just the simple declaration that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus makes the plainest claim to deity that maybe he's made yet in his life. In verse 30, I and the Father are one. And it was this statement that, boy, made their blood boil to the point of finding rocks to pick up that they might implement some mob justice and kill him right then and there. This was blasphemy, they said. But notice, Jesus takes this opportunity to point out just one more time that they have missed not only him, but they have misinterpreted so much of the Old Testament. Their hearts are not in the right place. See, Jesus quotes here in this passage from Psalm 82 where the word God's, little g, is legitimately used to describe others. Others than God Himself. And in the case of Psalm 82, 6, the psalmist there is describing Israel's judges who had been given these high offices by Yahweh and yet they had corrupted their offices despite the high calling that they had been giving. And it says this in Psalm 82.6, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And the point that Jesus is making is this. 
If the Scriptures refer to mere men called by God to a high office as God's, lowercase g, in Psalm 82.6, and yet here I am doing these incredible things that you've never seen, and I say that I'm the Son of God sent by the Father Himself, and yet you freak out, how much more should you be believing Me? Simply because I use this language. It's really a... A defense that I don't know that Jesus needed to make, and yet he does. He says, I am God. And it was the last straw for those in unbelief. Now the plot to kill him is fully in motion, and it's just a matter of time. Jesus is God, and he must be believed. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, Here's where I want us to be. I want us to be in a place of wonder and gratitude, in a place of, or in a posture of submission and dependence. A place of wonder and gratitude, in a posture of dependence and submission before the one who has authored our salvation and the one who will bring it to its conclusion to its consummation. It's not up to us. Praise God, it's not. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words of our Savior, deep words, deep things of God that we can't wrap our heads around, and yet we are so grateful for the glimpse that we have of the fact that Your grip is strong enough to hold against all of our wiggling, all of our attempts to get away. That you who began this work in us will bring it to completion. Oh, how that stirs our hearts with gratitude. But Father, may it also motivate our hearts to proclaim this message this message, this free offer of the gospel to all who will hear that they too might believe. That they too might see and have their eyes opened and be kept to the very end. So Father, may this motivate in us not only wonder, but a movement towards being light and salt in this world as you see fit. Oh, Father, take these truths, plant them deep in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.